Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And today I'm really uh, excited um, to have a, a special guest, someone who reached out to me um, as a fan of my show and that sort of thing. Uh, Omar, um, how do you spell it? Fakuri? You're very close, Fakuri, yeah. Fakuri, okay, there we go. Uh, Omar, yeah, well, welcome to the show, Omar. Oh, thanks, Dale. Thanks. Glad to be here. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to have you on the show because um, you've got kind of a fascinating journey in that faith journey and that sort of thing. You you haven't just been in one or two uh, places and that sort of thing throughout your life. You, you've gone through an entire journey of different, very different uh, types of religion. So first thing I want to do is, you know, let me just kind of throw it open to you. And why don't you just tell the audience about who you are um, and maybe about your faith journey and, and everything there? Okay. Um, well, <clears throat> I'll make it uh, short. I started off uh, from a Muslim family and um, not not terribly conservative, but uh, definitely, you know, definitely faithful. And um, when I went to college, I really didn't have any real knowledge about religion or anything. So it was very easy for me to become an atheist in college. And, um, you know, of course, the institutions these days are just <laughs> breeding grounds for atheism. So this is back in uh, in the late 80s. And um, uh, I became uh, agnostic, atheistic in college. And then while I was there, um, I started studying Eastern religions and Eastern mysticism and became interested in all things of the Hare Krishnas or Hinduism. And uh, I know that they look very silly on the outside. And you see, you know, guys in the airports with the orange robes on. You think, what are these people are crazy? They've lost their minds. But really, actually, it is very closely based on um, a very old uh, Hindu tradition uh, they have multiple streams of Hinduism, and uh, there's some big divergences and some minor ones uh, as you branch out. And um, this religion goes back to a school from about 500 years ago that itself has roots in a tradition that's a few thousand years old. And they have a large body of uh, literatures and scriptures that are highly philosophical that uh, I became very interested in and uh, made me join up. I joined up with them for about a year. Then I started really getting the feeling I was in a cult, and it's very culty um, in a lot of ways, a lot of personality cult things going on on the side of the religion, and it's sort of an attempt to transplant a whole nother culture into the middle of America, and it looks very foreign here, and it's very weird. I'm, I know that, but philosophically, it was quite fascinating for me. And uh, after a year, I traveled to India, found a teacher in that line, um, you know, from there, um, and started following that. Did that for about 10 years, uh, became uh, disenchanted with that, and dropped off and went through a number of years of an atheist agnostic phase and then over time of spending more time just thinking about philosophy, thinking about things like paranormal events and different things, started kind of coming back around to the idea that at least there must be something bigger and better than we are in the universe. There's there's something which we're part of that we come from that we don't really know exactly what it is. And so 
anyway, I, <clears throat> from there, I have uh, friends who are Christians. And uh, one guy kind of directed me to start looking at just some just some movies, uh, you know, uh, The Chosen and different things. And I said, wow, you know, that's that's that gives me a little different perspective. And actually, I'm going to back up also a little bit. Um, something that really spurred me was um, uh, Jordan Peterson started talking about the Bible and the significance of the Bible. And um, as as a work of literature, as a work of philosophy, of uh, mythology and of thought. And, you know, he's a, anyone who's watched him for a length of time knows he's a very deep thinker. And uh, he did this fascinating talk where he explained how every book <laughs> written in the Western world is primarily or secondarily influenced by the Bible and is either retelling or addressing issues that are in the Bible. So that made me take an interest in it. Then my friends kind of directed me a little more. And then I started reading seriously and starting to read uh, large parts of the New Testament. And I have spent many, many hours in the past few months, I mean, you know, like average of six hours a day, um, watching videos and watching people online and reading and studying and trying to uh, learn as much as I can about it. And there's a lot more to it than uh, I used to give credit to uh, Christianity for being. And it's, it's pretty fascinating. So that's where I am right now. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it's a fascinating journey. And oh, I uh, see we're being joined by... Oh, there's Teddy. Yeah. See, I, I wasn't lying. I, I did reach out. <laughs> hey, Teddy, how's it going? Not yet. Oh, there she is. Can you hear us, Teddy? Hello. <laughs> oh, can't hear her. Can't hear you, Teddy. You're muted. Connecting to audio. Okay. Can you hear us now? Hello. Oh, there you Oh, are. hello. There you are. <laughs> Hi. Are you Omar? I am. Hi, how are you, Teddy? Hi, nice meeting you. Doing nice to well. meet you too. A little bit of a pet emergency. This oh, morning. that's all right. That's what, that's what Dale was saying. Yeah. The delay. Did it get straightened out? Yes, yes. Okay. And hopefully awesome. he won't be squealing or anything. <laughs> <But>. Awesome. So, <laughs> so, yeah, I guess um, we, we are recording now, just so you know, Teddy. Um, okay. But um, I, basically, we just kind of started. Omar just kind of gave us. Um, a brief intro into his faith journey. So mm -hmm. obviously you weren't here for that, but um, Omar, if you don't mind, would you maybe very briefly just kind of give a quick, quick recap? Sure, sure. From a Muslim background, went to college, became an atheist, got interested in Eastern mysticism, um, then um, uh, joined uh, actually the Hare Krishnas, studied a lot about Hinduism, traveled to India, uh, spent 10 years in, uh, in Hinduism, um, after a year, I left the Hare Krishnas, but I still was interested in the religious background of it. Did that for 10 years, dropped out of that, spent another, I don't know, close to 20 years being agnostic, atheistic, and then uh, recently became interested in Christianity and have spent quite a bit of time studying it. And uh, I know about Dale from his uh, Shroud uh, shroud Wars and Shroud Debates and and. You know, there's just no one on the internet who has the the breadth of information on the shroud and the organization of the information that he has on it. Right? I, I agree. Was just telling him that earlier, he's just pretty awesome the way he put it together. He is. 
So you, you can't see me, but I'm blushing right now. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, that means a lot to me that, you know, I put a lot of effort for people to benefit from that. So the fact that it is benefiting you, Omar, uh, means the world to me. That's uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I just, you know, when someone goes through the trouble, oops, did I close Teddy or something? No, no, oh, this is just, I'm just playing with the views on this. I, I just don't uh, I'm not too familiar with it. So, um, yeah, it, it's like I just when someone goes through that much work and that much trouble to do something, you just really have to appreciate it because it's not something you have to do. And if you never did it, then I wouldn't have, you know, a, a quarter of the information that I have about the shroud now. So. Awesome. Awesome. All right, cool. So, so I think the first thing that I kind of want to start off with, um, obviously, the the bulk of your life in terms of religion was spent as a Hindu kind of thing. So yeah, I, religiously. Yeah, I, I kind of want to like, compare and contrast a little bit. Um, so, so maybe I'll start with you starting with the concept of God in general, your, your <clears throat> general uh -huh. theist, would you describe yourself as a general theist at the moment? Or? Yeah, you can still go with that. Okay. All right. Um, so what is Hinduism's take on God kind of thing versus Christianity or and or your general theist take on God today? Right. So, uh, you know, in, in Hinduism, you really, I have to divorce the outward appearance and the, uh, what you might call the mythology from the philosophical background. It's really like two different things that have been overlaid on each other. Um, that's kind of the thing that made me kind of give it up is that at some point I realized, you know what, I'm not sure I can believe that this mythology is actually real. Mm -hmm. um, but philosophically, um, the epistemology, the ontology is pretty much unparalleled in religion that I've seen. Um, but you have two major streams philosophically. You have the monists who believe that there's only God, that everything you see is an illusion, even our individuality. And when we become fully realized, um, then uh, first we become self-realized, then we realize that we're God and everyone and everything is God and that's all that exists. Mm -hmm. In opposition to that view, they also have a, a dualistic view, which is much closer to the Judeo-Christian tradition where there's there's man and there's God and there's the world. And these three things are all real. And that uh, all of it, uh, God is the substratum of everything and um, the foundation. And that um, the living beings are have similar in quality to God, but in uh, but eternally individual and atomic in comparison to him and exist to serve God and to live in his creation. And then the levels of creation are um, grossly a, a material world and then a spiritual world where God resides. And this world is basically a giant mechanism that um, houses embodied souls. And these souls are transmigrating from body to body and either becoming denigrated and going into lower life forms or becoming purified and elevated and moving up into 
higher lives where eventually the goal is to find uh, a spiritual lineage and teacher and then hook up with that um that current and then be uh over another another series of lifetimes gradually purified and elevated until they can enter the spiritual world after they die gotcha and, and you were a part of the latter when you yes the latter definitely yeah very much yeah yeah the the, the former uh Advaitism, which was uh, propounded by a guy named Shankar, that's who is a very famous name in uh, in Hinduism. You can't take a 15-minute class and not hear about Shankaracharya. And um, that was an earlier school of, of Hinduism. And, and I think that even before that, I think they started with a general mythology and kind of like a, a primitive conception of God, you know, kind of like the Greeks or others had. And uh, I think there's also, I'm not a scholar, and I, I know scholars who will tell you that Zoroastrianism and Hinduism are linked, that one came out of the other, they both grew out of a similar source. So it started off with that. And then you know, in India, they spent a lot of time contemplating and thinking and philosophizing. And even when Alexander went there, his he brought philosophers with him in his retinue. And they were amazed at, you know, the conversations they were having with those people. And these are people who were studied in Plato. And of course, Aristotle was contemporary to Alexander and to, so the great minds of, of Greece you know, went there and were, you know, had this very in-depth conversations with these people. So they're not just superstitious snake worshipers and whatnot. So, um, and they spent even after that time, you know, thousands of years developing, focusing heavily on philosophy, on mathematics and astronomy. Uh, those were things that they were very interested in and where the Western world was taking a lot of time developing technology and, um, you know, construction and building via the Romans and a lot of more technological stuff. They put their energy into developing philosophy. And um, regarding Christianity, my thinking right now, and, and I have no true solid basis for this other than my personal impression is that when Christian missionaries, I think starting with Thomas, started going to India, they brought the, you know, not just Jesus, but also the ideology behind it with them. And I think that transplanted there in a way where it really suited them and they incorporated a lot of those ideas into their religion and actually wound up adopting it. Um, that, you know, the, the religion called Chaitanya Vaishnavism that um, the Hare Krishnas were based on, um, I think is, is very influenced by Christianity. I, I think that uh, the whole um, mythos of Chaitanya, he's, uh, I was choking with a friend of mine who's a professor of religion saying he's Jesus without the beard, man. It's just, it's, it's, he is an incarnation of God himself, a direct incarnation of God in the form of his greatest worshiper, 
who comes to earth to teach man how to sacrifice everything and give their heart uh, to God in love. It's by following his example. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, and it's so funny because I come from a Muslim background. So it never occurred to me all that time I was involved in the religion, the, the similarity until I started researching Christianity. And I said, well, you know, there's a 1500 year gap between these two. So this could only have flown one way. Mm. So, and, and also the way in which they conceptualize love of God um, is very Pauline. When I read Paul, I go, oh my God, this is Raganuga Bhakti. This is what they were talking about. And I think they were also influenced uh, by that. You know, generally speaking, you can look at the history of religion as moving from a temple worship kind of thing where temples are the center of everything. I was just watching a, uh, a five-hour walking documentary of Pompeii. And there's temples everywhere. So whether it was God or gods or whatever, when humans started really gathering in cities, religion was very important and there were temples everywhere. And of course, the Jew Judaism was based around temple worship and sacrifice. Those were the two big things. You go to the temple and you do sacrifices to be purified for your sins. And that was pretty universal. That was all over, not just the Mediterranean basin, but I think that was uh, the Chinese had something like that. And certainly in India, it was all about temples and sacrifice. And um, then at some point, religion flips and becomes internalized. And it becomes about devotion and about love of God. And I really think that flip started with Christianity. And you see it in other parts of the world, but I think you see it in Christianity first. And um, other people kind of took it from there and adopted it. Awesome. Yeah, that, that kind of gets into my, my next question before I'm going to go to, to Teddy and open it up for discussion. But yeah, so, so in, this, in terms of the existence of God, I, I kind of want to look at, number one, the concept of God in, in the uh, theistic Hinduism versus mm -hmm. And we're talking about some of the similarities there. Um, mm -hmm. I want to turn it to you to get some of the differences. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, what are some of the differences conceptually? between <clears throat> Conceptually, so far, I think that, you know, and I'm just going to refer to blanketly as the Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, and mostly I can only speak mostly from the Chaitanya Vaishnavism perspective, because that's the one that I studied the most. And, um, but in terms of the Judeo-Christian tradition, I think it's a little fuzzy. Um, the idea, the understanding of God, you have, it's a little bit fuzzy because God in, you look in the old Testament and I've only read the Pentateuch and, um, God is walking among us, right? Um, you see, uh, there was a scene that just flipped me out when I was reading the, the I don't know if it was in Genesis or which book it was in, but uh, Abraham was yep. camped out in the desert in a tent. And this guy, these three guys come to visit him in his tent. And one of them just happens to be God, <laughs> yep. you know? And then later 
you find that it God becomes a little more abstracted, a little more the traditional idea of God that we have now as being um, an all-powerful being who exists outside of time and space and uh, influences the world. And um, I don't know how much of that uh, is related to Platonism and, uh, you know, Greek influence. Um, but I think a lot of the difference, too, is in Hinduism, they have a conception of God, or at least in Chaitanya Vaishnavism, as being, uh, as being not just all-powerful, but also as being the that everything in the universe is based on some kind of energy. And grossly, there is a spiritual energy, which you could also call consciousness, and there's material energy, which is this inner world. And um, that God has multifarious energies that he's always expanding, just like you can picture the sun expanding light into the sky, or you know, even a light bulb in a room expanding its energy. And in through that, he's always connected to everything, whether it's part of the material world or the physical or the spiritual world, God is always present there in some way. And I think that's a big difference because I think in Christianity and Judaism, God is in the heavens and he can kind of remote control the world, but he's never in it or part of it or really seems to be connected to it. It's more like a machination that he set into motion, created, set into motion, let it run. And every now and then he intervenes, but that he's not embedded in and, and enmeshed with. Yeah. And um, of course you can't just say, okay, well take the whole world, add it all up and you have God. That's not it. It's that there's a relationship of the potent and the potency between God and the world and God and man. And so these things, whether it's the heavens or the physical world or the living beings are always connected and kind of um, connected by invisible threads to God because they're part of his energy or one of his energies that he, that he's expanding. Gotcha. Yeah. So I think that's a big difference. Gotcha. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I think you mentioned two very interesting things that I want to get into, but uh, mm -hmm. so number one, you hinted about God being sort of anthropomorphic in the old Testament, right? He shows up face to face. Yes. Uh, so right. that brings up the issue of the Trinity, which might be an interesting conceptual difference. I think that the Trinity is something that influenced Hinduism quite a bit. And I, I think it's interesting because I had no, there are people who have all this trouble understanding the Trinity. And uh, in Hinduism, it's, it's very comprehensible that God is infinite. And, you know, of course, I know you don't agree with that, but that he has an infinitude of forms that he can take. And they're all the same person, just assuming all these different forms to suit his different moods and his different pastimes. Awesome. All right, cool. So, um, Teddy, obviously you've been, you've been very good uh, and sitting here and listening. So I, I want to turn it to you. Like what, what are some of your thoughts about what Omar is saying here about the differences in the concept of God between Hindus and Christians? Well, I, what intrigued me is uh, 
that you didn't think that God was necessarily, and, and may, correct me if I'm wrong, in terms of that there was an interrelationship between us and God that you you thought that Christians think God is more as, you know, somewhere else. And right. We, we have to separate, you know, ontology, right? Ontologically, I, we all know that man is created by God. That's that's a universal. But how that relationship between the creator and the created actually physically works is 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 a little bit different between the two, I think. But I think I think what I was kind of thinking is that because I've experienced in my own life mm -hmm. um, some occasions where there does seem to be uh, an interconnectedness uh, between sure. God and and myself and man and and uh, and so I think sometimes and and usually when those those few times when that has happened it's when i'm in such deep contemplation of christ mm -hmm. and um and there are plenty of times when i do that but sometimes there are just these special times and mm -hmm. i i have this notion mm -hmm. and i i think it's true that the closer we get to understanding the full reality of God's existence, mm -hmm. not, not just faith, but knowledge. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a big difference to me between faith and knowledge. And, and, and sometimes, you know, kind of like with the Venn diagram, there can be some overlap between mm -hmm. the two, but, Faith means that, you know, either you're completely a hundred, I mean, you're either a hundred percent putting your faith in something or 97% or 80%, but, but faith um, necessitates that there is uh, some degree of uncertainty mm -hmm. that you are just having to believe in it without warrant right. or, and maybe there is warrant, but the faith part you know, th there can be the evidence, but the yeah. faith does not have the warrant. You, so you that's right. That's, that's that. the leap of faith, right? That's exactly. that's that's Kierkegaard. I used to love Kierkegaard. I, I just have a lot of respect for him. And um, yeah, leap of faith. And then that's the nature of faith. And even Hindus will tell you the same thing is that you can have all the evidence mounted up in the world, but at some point you have to make a decision and act on it or act either through belief or through physically act but you know every time an elevator door opens you don't know for a hundred percent whether you're going to step in that thing and it's going to collapse but you exactly. have faith that it won't very right? good and you bring <laughs> up something that i bring up a lot and that is that uh i find many atheists and agnostics <clears throat> I they're they're very against the concept of faith and taking that leap of faith when it comes to everybody God. has but some they, kind of faith in something but and, they don't look at it when they're taking faith that god doesn't exist or they, right. they're going to 
step outside their home and a bullet's not going to hit them or they're going to get in their car and they're not going to die in a car wreck. Right. So every single thing we do as well as every single thing we don't do yes. involves a degree of faith and the arbitrariness of when some people say, oh, well, you know, I don't have I don't want to have faith in this or I right. only want to do things that are evidence based. We have to realize that there's only one thing, and I, I always pound this point, mm. that the only thing we can know with 100% certainty, it's certainly not science, because there's plenty of uncertainty in mm -hmm. science, as much mm -hmm. as sometimes scientists, or at least some scientists don't want to acknowledge, but there's lots of uncertainty with science. Uh, but the only thing we can be 100% certain of is our existence and our consciousness. And, That's you know, right. I think, That's therefore, true. I am Rene Descartes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, if I can, if I can, uh, oh, Teddy. Yeah. Okay, Teddy. If you have, finish off in about a minute, I, I have something I want to say uh, related. Well, to go, go ahead. Go ahead. This is a good um, point for you. So kind of, so I kind of, we're kind of transitioning into the evidences for us. So, so that's great. But just before we get into that, I want to say something about the concepts of God. Kind of mm -hmm. exactly what both what Omar is saying uh, in terms of the differences and what Teddy's saying in terms of uh, God's relationships to right. us. Well, just to, oh, go ahead. Oh no, Frau. So, so here, here's my take. What I wanted to say is, mm. look, the main difference, ontologically speaking, uh, between him, between what Omar is saying, theistic Hindus and Christians is, look, the. Hindus will believe that um, God stands in an identity relationship with creation. Creation is identical to God. It's a part of him or or, or something like identical that. Identical in him, you could say, because he has a fullness beyond it, right? You can't take all the little pieces of creation and humans and souls. You can take everything outside of God, add it up, put it in a big pile, add it up, and it will not equal God. Right. So their identity is in him, not equated with him. Mm -hmm. You can't sum it all up and make it add up to God. It doesn't Correct. work like that. Okay. I agree with you. Would you say so? That's like a panentheism type concept? Or... I don't know that term. Okay. So it's just kind of what you were saying that really God is in creation kind of thing, but he's also above it. He's more than that. His fullness. Yeah, and I would say not that God is in creation, but the creation is in Him. Okay. Right. In the sense, that, for example, if if I um, create something, whether it be artwork or I build something, mm -hmm. there is a part of me that is in that creation of mine. It, it's sure. got my intelligence. It's got my creativity. It's got my handiwork to it. There is a part of me in it. And, but that creation, that piece of artwork or whatever, that is not the same as being me. There's something far right. more to the, the intelligent designer, or hopefully intelligent, mm -hmm. <laughs> when it comes to me. <laughs> all right, cool. So, all right. And what the thing that I was also going to say is, but Teddy, Teddy is also absolutely right that for Christians, we do say that God stands in various relations, ontological relations. He stands in a sustaining relation, right? He sustains creation and existence, for example. Or, you know, Teddy was mentioning certain personal relations that he stands in and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I, I think that uh, Omar was right. When we talk about omnipresence, 
we can ask, well, what, what does that property entail? And I would agree with what you were saying is, look, it, it's not that God's in creation looking at us and he's everywhere. I say that for me, the definition of omnipresent presence is that he is cognitively uh, aware of and causally active at every spatial mm -hmm. location, uh, mm -hmm. everywhere in the universe kind of thing. That's my definition of omnipresence, which is maintains God is strictly separate from creation. Right. So the, the interesting feature about the Chaitanya Vaishnavism is there's two words. Uh, Dvaita means different. And Advaita means non-different. So you have the Advaitists like Shankar that I talked about earlier that believe that everything is non-different from God. And then there are schools of Hinduism which are Dvaitist or dualists. Mm -hmm. And I think Judeo-Christianity is very dualistic. Um, you know, there's God, there's creation, they separate them. In this, it's called um, <clears throat> Achintya Dvaita Advaita. Achintya means which can't be conceived. And it means you can't hold it in your mind all at once. And it means simultaneous oneness and difference. So if you look at um, an optical illusion of the chalice and the two faces, you can see the faces or you can see the chalice or you can see the faces or you can see the chalice, but you can't see both simultaneously. So it's a chintya that our limited human brains work on the basis of duality. And that's where you get, you know, these stupid questions like, oh, if God can do anything, can he make a weight so heavy he can't lift it? It's because, <laughs> uh, Sorry, go ahead. It's, it's because our minds are inherently dualistic. And so we always want to break everything down into dualities or the next step is to take the dualities and synthesize them all into one, this sort of Hegelian thing, where you take, you know, you say, oh, you recognize this dualism and the dualism and the way we think, and you try to smash it all up and merge it into one thing. So um, in this particular school of Hinduism, they say you can't, you can do both and you can't do either. They both exist simultaneously and it's inconceivable. We can't grasp it all at one time because of the limitation of our mind. But that God's omnipresence means that the world is fully in God. It's part of him. It's one of his energies. It literally exudes from him. But all those things coming off of him cannot be added up back into his, uh, to his whole. So it's a simultaneous one in difference. And, and um, you know, where Christianity and Judaism are definitely lean more towards the dualistic side. They recognize man, God, creation, and God as being separate things, but there is the source. God is the source of all these things, but he's forever removed ontologically at the, at the ex existential level. He is existentially separate from it so that, you know, theoretically, God could snap his fingers and poof the whole universe out of existence that we're in, and he would still be there. 
But in Hinduism, they say, no, the universe is, is extending physically, existentially from him. So if you can't remove it because you'd be removing him. So all of these things exist in an eternal relationship to each other of simultaneous oneness and difference. Awesome. Awesome. All right. That's, cool. that's, that's a key difference, I think. All right. Cool. And uh, one thing, just before we move on to the evidential question here, um, mm -hmm. I want to, Teddy, he, uh, he also mentioned this interesting notion of the Trinity. He, he hinted that, look, in the Old Testament, God is very anthropomorphic. He's showing up in person. Uh, and talking to people like Abraham face to face, but there's also verses in the Bible that say, "Yeah, but you can't see God face to face, or you'll die." Uh, he's so holy, and, and we're contaminated by sin that you will die if we see him face to face. So, for me, the, these are theophanies. This uh, is Jesus, right? So, in the Trinity, we have God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think that the Old Testament theophanies are Jesus coming in form taking on a human form so you think that when moses is on the mountain getting the ten commandments he's getting it from jesus and not god the father yes okay he sees him face to face. Hmm. but no he didn't from what i recall he didn't actually see god's face it, it no he saw his back human. right yeah he didn't he saw see god's face. back yeah but i mean you're still seeing god whether you're seeing his face or you're seeing his back you're still seeing an anthropomorphic representation. Mm -hmm. um, embodiment, rather, embodiment. Well, and you know, that could, you know, now that you mentioned that, that does make me think of something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is um, many times when Christians talk about how we are created in the image of God, mm -hmm. we, the, the standard response is, you know, because we think of God as this amorphic, being at least God in terms of the Godhead. And uh, we think in our explanation of image is we're created in the image of God in, in terms of just certain essences mm -hmm. of, of God's nature. Um, but with my uh, studying the Shroud of Turin, uh, more and more, and actually, I think I've come to, um, I think I'm pretty firm in this thought now that what is meant by the image of God is mm -hmm. the image of God incarnate, which mm -hmm. makes perfect sense. I mean, it just seems mm -hmm. so obvious now that I think about it. Right. It's like, well, here we have on this, on this linen cloth, the image of a man, and it has all of the indicia of being... Uh, a crucified Christ, mm -hmm. and this is the image of God that we are, you know, literally created in. Obviously, we are not God, but in terms of the form. And so mm -hmm. while we also, uh, you know, while the Bible speaks of how the the more we do in terms of obeying God's commandments. And as we become more and more sanctified, we become more God-like. Not that, not that we are capable of becoming God, but we become right. more God-like. I do think that we also have those, those essences within us as well. But 
But I, I, I think very strongly that this image of God, that a very large part of what that means is God incarnate. And, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. too gives a, a further evidence that, that this cloth is, mm -hmm. is sending a very, very powerful message to humanity. And mm -hmm. so many people are, I, I, I just, it astounds me how many people I come across who have never heard of the Shroud of Turin. They're, they're just completely unaware. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and there are plenty of documentaries yeah. on it, especially around Easter time and magazines. I was a 15 year old and mm -hmm. I just came across, uh, it was on television. It was around Easter time, and then the next day, I, I saw a magazine with the shroud on it uh, at the grocery store, and uh, and then I prompt, I asked my mom if we could uh, go get a book about the shroud, and so that's how um, I, you know, first learned about the shroud and became really interested and excited about it. But it was from the age of fifteen on that I no longer just had to have faith in God, right. but I had real knowledge of God. And, and the more I study the shroud, the, <laughs> it, it becomes more complex the more you study it. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it's, there are still many parts of it that, you know, yes, we can know uh, things about it scientifically, but it, it seems to me what I've been concluding is God has given us enough scientific and historical evidence to know what this is and what its significance is, but we're never going to have um, perfect explanations for everything about it. And we're certainly never going to, I, I'm confident of, nobody's ever going to reproduce it with all of its special qualities because then it would be of this world. It would be of the right. natural world. And I'm convinced that it is uh, supernatural, uh, no. it, it, but, it, no. but it, 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 it mimics Christ himself. Mm -hmm. it's, it's supernatural, yet natural, of this world, yet mm. the earth okay. is very cool. So I'm going to, Omar, I want to step in and just say, so I'm going to turn it to you and you guys can go on to the shroud. Oh. Again, this is an informal discussion, so we don't have to <clears throat> but. There's one aspect here about the shroud before um, I'd like you to answer this as well on the concept of God, right? So okay. one important difference with the shroud. So Teddy's saying, well, this is the image of God incarnate, mm -hmm. right? So, so this is, I find that this is different than the theophanies in the Old Testament, because in the New Testament period, when Jesus became incarnate, God was <clears throat> incarnate, he took on a, he gained a human nature during his mm -hmm of humiliation that's mm -hmm. different he did not acquire a, a human nature when he was talking to abraham or talking to jacob you know where jacob wrestles god god uh i think he's wrestling jesus and then he names the place peniel which in the hebrew he calls it that because he wrestled god face to face and yet his life was spared um so when you say wrestle because i've heard this term and i know the word israel from uh, Jordan Peterson means those who wrestle with God. Do you mean they physically had a wrestling match yes. or do you mean they're wrestling metaphorically? Okay. I, I don't know about the story, so I'm it, not familiar with that. 
they they actually were wrestling and at one point from, from my memory jacob was winning against god and then god touched his knee and instantly he lost the fight or something like that that just from memory that's what happened so jacob was so amazed that he was seeing god face to face and yet he didn't die as the bible says he would right so in that case, the, the point is about the Trinity, the concept of God, where mm-hmm. Jesus is coming down, taking on the form of a human being, right? So that's kind of similar to what Hindus say, but in the New yes. Testament, it's yeah. totally different. Because- it's on a form, and like Chaitanya was a real historical person, you know, and they believe that he's an incarnation of God, <clears throat> but he's able. you're able to see him, talk to him, even the, the Muslims interacted with him. You know, there's historical documentation. He existed. Of course, you know, most people outside of the tradition are going to come and say, well, he was a guy and the mythology was ascribed to him. It's really not relevant to the point. The point is, is yes, just like you, just like with the idea of the Trinity, they believe that God is able to channel himself down into a physical form and be apprehended by people because he's all powerful. There's nothing he can't do. So, you know, I've heard people say, uh, rabbis make arguments, you know, how can God do this or that? How could he be Jesus? Well, it's like, if once you accept the idea of God, then you have to accept that God can do anything <laughs> and, and, and anything is possible. So, you know, and in Hinduism, they definitely believe that. Uh, for me, the problem was, is that it seemed to be tied primarily to mythological figures like Krishna and Vishnu and and figures who clearly are appear at least to me appear to be mythological. Now they may have been based on real people who were then in you know expanded upon and, and attain mythical status. You know that was very common in the old world, right? I mean, you know, Augustus was worshipped as God. They had altars to him. They believed he was a god, and everyone knew who his parents were, where he came from. He was Caesar's nephew. You know, he lived, he bled, he died. He was sickly, and yet they still worshipped him as a god. It was just not uncommon at all for people to not have a problem seeing that the divine can reside in a way, can come into the world in a way that can be apprehended. Gotcha. Okay, so just a quick question then, because I want to, from my understanding of Hinduism, they they do not have a similar notion of a, a real incarnation where Jesus takes on a human nature. Oh, no, that's not true. Uh, no, like I told you, Chaitanya was considered an incarnation, and they have a whole stratification of incarnations that they explain that there's different types. There's full incarnations where God literally transports himself directly into the world, and there are partial incarnations where God transports one facet or feature of himself into a particular embodiment in the world to a, to accomplish a specific task. And there are what are called Avesh incarnations or Shakti Avesh, where God will uh, take a person and put his power into that person to possibly to such a degree, degree it would be impossible for us to distinguish whether it was God or a person. That's how they look at Jesus, by the way. They think that Jesus was a uh, a soul, a human, a person, 
but that God um, overwhelmingly empowered him and acted directly through him in such a way that there's just no tangible distinction. You can't say where Jesus ends and where God begins. Okay, so so just to clarify, that's their conception of him. Okay, yeah, because from from what I heard is from my from my understanding, they would say that yeah, God comes down and transforms or takes on the form of a human right. something, but he doesn't take on the nature of it. He's still he's like Superman pretending to be Clark Kent. He still has all his divine nature, divine. Yes, you're right. No, that's that's true. That's well, it depends. It depends. Um, it's it's it approximates. You see, and then they have a whole other concept, which is of God as a majestic being and God as human-like. And there's a whole stratification in there. So you have the idea of God with four arms that's obviously not human, uh, you know, lying on a bed of snakes on the causal ocean, creating the universe. And you go, well, that's nothing like me, you know, vaguely like me, but I certainly you know, that's something different, that's bigger, that's different. And this goes to the temple worship and to the conception of God majestically and overawing us with a sense of inescapable majesty that always makes you feel separated from him, right? Even, Even if you were to go, an ordinary person were just to go to the White House and meet the president, they would always feel a little overawed. You can't just pat him on the back and talk to him like your best friend, right? So you magnify that, you know, infinitely when you talk about God, then there's this infinite majesty and you always feel tiny and separated. Well, you know, the theory goes in this particular school of Hinduism and different ones have different ideas because, and those ideas kind of conform to their end conception of God. So in uh, the Hare Krishna's, Krishna is very human. He has two arms, not four. He has parents. He uh, has troubles. He works. He's a cowherd. Uh, like Jesus was a shepherd. He was a cowherd. He uh, walked around on the earth. And yes, he always retained his majesty internally, but externally, he appears just like a human being. And if an ordinary person, not a person who was allowed to have the vision, were to see him, he would just look like some human being. And in fact, that shows in the stories about him where, you know, he is, I don't know if you ever read Bhagavad Gita or the Mahabharata, but um, he's in the Mahabharata, he's intimately connected with this family of five brothers, and he helps them win a war against their uh, relatives who have usurped and stolen their kingdom from them. And in the process, he teaches uh, about religion and how to find him and God and and the nature of him, the nature of the world, the nature of humanity, and the purpose of life in the process of fighting this war. But the other people on the other side thought that he was just some guy. They they did not have the eyes to see him differently. So it depends, you know, in their conception on what God grants them. And Jesus did the same thing. He had his disciples, and you read in John where, um, you know, he starts talking about, I am the bread of life, and you guys just don't get it. 
your ancestors were eating physical bread and it's great. God gave it to you. That's wonderful. But I'm the bread of life. You have to eat of this bread. And they're going, isn't this the guy that came from Galilee? And, you know, we know who his parents are and who's this schmo? What's he talking about? Because he didn't let them see it. And his disciples saw it. So when he started saying that, you know, truly, I tell you that none of you can come, you know, can know me unless God grants it. And um, they got mad and left him and people left him in droves. They mm -hmm. said, I'm done with you. Who are you? You're pumped. You're puffed up. Mm -hmm. And then he turns to the disciples and he says, OK, you guys, what do you want to do? Are you next? Are you leaving? They're like, oh, no, no. We have nowhere to go. There's nowhere else. No, of course not. And um, so in Hinduism, also, God always internally has his um, majesty, but whether he chooses to express it or not, whether he chooses for people to see it or not, is in different degrees. And with Chaitanya, just like Jesus, that's why I was saying that I think that this was influenced by Christianity. Um, that uh, he was uh, fully humanized in terms of feeling like a person, living like a person, doing just like a person, and not God as a person, but as a person who even forgets that he's God internally so that he can worship himself. Gotcha. Awesome. All right, cool. Yeah, I just I wanted to clarify that. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to stand in the way. This is an informal discussion, so we can go out of order. So Teddy, okay. Teddy brought up this great uh, question about evidences in favor of Christianity, namely the shroud. And yeah. I know that's something you find persuasive. So I, I don't want to get in your guys' way. Do you guys want to, Teddy, uh, do you want to kind of talk about the shroud with Omar for a little bit? And I'll step in. Sure. If I say. You never have to twist my arm to talk about the shroud. <laughs> the shroud is so cool, isn't it? It is. I um, and I'll tell you the the more you study it, the cooler and more fascinating it gets. Mm -hmm. It it becomes absolutely mind-boggling. And um, it, something that you had mentioned earlier in terms of uh, the duality of things, like mm -hmm. for example, the um, the optical illusion of the uh, the, the two faces in the chalice or the, uh, the other famous one with the old woman and the young woman. Right, right, yeah. Um, I, I've, I've actually got a, uh, a little, it's like a deck of cards of nothing but optical illusions. Oh, they're, cool. they're great fun. I love those. Um, but something very fascinating that I discovered, it well, I had known about this for a while, but it it only started to gel in my mind the significance mm -hmm. of it, and uh, and that is uh, so. You may have heard that some people claim that you can see teeth on the shroud right. of teeth. Yeah, and then some people say, "Oh no, it's just the banding of the threads where they were bleached." Yeah. To me, that becomes like this common little mantra that you know it's the explanation for everything. And I'm like, "Well, I acknowledge that yes, each hank of thread was bleached separately, and there are mm -hmm. some 
variations when you go from one hank to the other. But that can't be just this catch-all explanation for every. No, because because I looked at it with the best quality pictures I could find, and I don't have really great images, unfortunately. But I could see the banding of the threads going up into the mouth. Okay, but isn't it convenient that this banding happens right under the nose, right between the lips, right where yeah. the mouth is supposed to be, not in the cheek, not in the Finger. eye, not in the forehead. Yeah. And I, just... and I have looked at other parts of the cloth to see, okay, do I see magical teeth appearing? Yeah, yeah right. And, you would, you would you expect can, to see them. And you can see, for example, a little bit a ways off, you'll see some little things that here and there could look like teeth, but you don't see a full set right where teeth right. should right. be. Right, right. And now, I don't know if anyone's point, gone to the trouble of counting them. I, uh, you know, and I still um, well, got it on can my... Raise, uh, can I raise an objection? Because believe it or not, I'm a little skeptical of this claim about the, the teeth. And I, I actually made a video afterwards. Uh, so Gary, I had Gary Habermas versus... Yep, I saw the video too. Yep, where yeah, I don't know why Gary Habermas didn't do it himself on the talk, but you did it for him because Hugh Ferry was was saying to him, "Well, can someone just show me the teeth? Just just show them." Oh, it's so obvious. <laughs> but, yeah, but here's the problem, right? So I drew my version of the teeth, and I can see them clearly. Uh, kind of, and I agree with you. Exactly what you were outlining is exactly what I was seeing. Okay, and you know I, what? I had a pro shroud, another pro shroud guy in the comments. He said, "Well, look, you're you're off. I see the lower teeth lower, right below where you were putting the lower teeth. Those are the upper teeth for them. So, like this kind of someone could say, oh, well, isn't this proof? Look, they are seeing. Well, you got a set. There's the upper and lower that show. Yeah, but yeah, where, both where, I was, where I was drawing the lower teeth, they were saying, no, those are the upper teeth." Um, so well, I, then where were your upper teeth? Did, were you outlining upper teeth? I was, teeth? yeah, I did. Yeah. But I, I clearly saw them up, up above where this person was. Well, I, I would like to maybe after the show or something, we can post something to, to show that, um, that difference there. But here is something I, I would say that this is evidence <clears throat> via and very not just intelligent design, clever design, <laughs> um, which is even better. And uh, sometimes, at least in this case, it is. Um, but it, I would argue that this is evidence that those teeth exist because of what it shows. There is, an, an optical illusion that goes on with the shroud. Like, have you ever seen those lenticular photographs mm -hmm. or postcards where it shows two images? Yeah. Oop, someone oh. cut out. Oh, uh, she froze, oh. might be back. And, turn, and then when it moves, <laughs> the painting that is based off of that photograph and its proportions by, I believe the person's name was Aid maybe Adrian Agamemnon or something like that. But it, 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 I think it's probably the closest representation that we have in terms of knowing what Christ looked like in the flesh. But aside from that, so with 
with the with the face on the shroud what is so incredibly stunning to me is <clears throat> is that you know one can look at the shroud the face and the traditional image that we see is where we see a thick mustache with only the lower lip showing and it illustrates a a face that is in repose resting in peace mm -hmm. but then as your mind flips and sees that second image of the of the um, optical illusion but it's there you see the teeth but now when you see the teeth look at what you see on that face you see a face in absolute agony which is i'm sure the face of of you know christ at christ's agonized face on i never the saw the, the agonized part of it i saw the teeth you know yeah. kind of peeking through but i don't see anything that looks like a face in distress the the when you look at it there's it looks like half an oval so like this right mm -hmm. and to me it it looks like the mouth is wide open like crying out in mm -hmm. the most mm -hmm. horrific distress but then think about it when we know that as christ would have been um when they were when they were preparing him to to place him in the shroud they put which is traditional a chin band and my mother who is from greece uh and in greece because of limited land um what they do is they only keep people buried for a certain amount of time i think maybe one or three years until the body skeletonizes and then they put the bones uh, somewhere else. I don't know if they call it an ossuary or not, but, you know, people aren't just normally buried like we do in America um, there, but, uh, or maybe just the wealthy, who knows. But, but my mom remembers as a child uh, being at the cemetery and seeing somebody's body being exhumed and seeing the chin band. So even, even, you know, in modern times, they still use that. And, and that's not even in, you know, we're Greek Orthodox, not Jewish. Right. So that's a common thing to close the mouth. Just, um, but the interesting thing is, so here, I'll. I'll <clears throat> so, oh, she froze again. Okay. Froze so again. that, yeah. So while well, she's frozen there, that's, that's interesting for, cause for me, I don't, I don't. The mouth, the mouth looks like this in this shape. I don't, okay. See, I, I don't see that though on my, on my end. Like, I because I remember Bob Rucker mentioning this something about the how the radiation would bounce off the teeth, and he sees the lips as open, but I see them as closed. So, I'm gonna I have a picture of it on my camera here. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, come on. Okay. And after we finish this, I, I do want to turn it to Omar to give kind of his general thing on two questions, like. You know, number one, what is the evidence that persuaded you that it's historically authentic to Jesus? And then number two, what do you make of the scientific evidence suggesting it's a miracle? But yeah, I see Teddy's. Uh, can y'all can y'all see how it's it's shaped like half 
uh, yeah, but his mouth is closed, and you can see his his cheeks. You know, you can see them right up here like this. You can see the cheeks. You can see where the beard is. You can see the cheeks, and it's closed, and the teeth are together. You can't have your mouth open and the teeth together at the same time. You can if, if the chin band has then closed. Yeah, I wonder whether there even was a chin band, because I know that Gary Habermas... Um, talks about the gap between the hair and the cheeks and says, oh, that's where the chin band was. But um, Barry Schwartz says himself, he says, no, it just looks that way because it was such a high contrast picture. And if you turn down the contrast a little bit, the rest of the face fills out between the hair and the gap. I, I've seen him say that a couple of times. But then the other thing is, is that that would make sense is you would expect a chin band because I believe that was part of a traditional... Jewish burial. Don't I don't know if it was. I don't know. Uh -huh. I, I've heard people talk about the traditional burial on different videos and stuff. And I've heard people say lots of different things and, and disagree with each other and say, this was the tradition. Well, no, that was the tradition. And all right, Fair enough. Well, all right. Well, Omar, I, I want to turn it to you. So, so let's kind of open, open it up. Uh, apart from the issue of the teeth, why, why on, why on, yeah, it's not showing up, Teddy, but why, why on earth is um yeah that's how you see it kind of thing okay yeah no does okay. that, that that's oh. not a happy face look at look at the downturning of, of the upper yeah but his cheeks are 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 like this if it was turned down his cheek look at the picture look at your actual picture and mm -hmm. you can see the like the chubby cheeks they're they're lifted like this if his mouth was downturned, his cheeks would be sunken with it. But his cheeks are lifted. The bones are high. And you but can that see. That could be the swelling. Don't know. It's possible. I, I think that the minutia of the image has a lot to do with how it's photographed. And I, I don't know if it's useful to try to pick individual little details out of one photograph. You'd have mm -hmm. to see a number of photographs at different contrasts and compare them to see because no, this is the image on the surface. This is I, the image that shows through when you when you invert it. So it's um, I think it's a little more finicky of an image to try to pick apart that closely. So with the, with the, after you, after you give this response, I, I want to turn it to Omar and ask him generally about the other evidence that he does convince him. But yeah, fin finish. Your thought here on sure. that? I was just going to say that that I've seen multiple photos of the shroud, and I'm always seeing this this um, optical illusion of seeing Christ's face in repose with the mm. the lower mm. lip showing, uh, with the mouth closed underneath <clears> the <throat> mustache, and then I see that very agonized look where where it looks like when we know that when Christ uh, died, he, he was sh he was crying out to God and then he gave his last breath. And I think with rigor mortis, I think that the mouth froze in an oval. Like if you think about crying out in your most agonized state, your mouth is going to be wide open like an oval. And, but then when you, when you take the, With the chin band, you close the bottom part of the oval, then you're oh, left see. with the semicircle or a semi-oval. 
And I think that's, but I think that the, the reason why the top part is curved like that is I think that rigor mortis froze, froze the mouth in that shape for this optical illusion. Cause I mean, it is just so eerie to me that I can look at that photo and I see Christ in a peaceful state. And then I switch gears in my mind and see Christ in an agonized state. And I, I find that to be a little bit again and, and see, see if I see that. I, I just never noticed that, but it always looked like a very peaceful, placid face to me. Even when you're seeing the teeth. Yeah. Because I see the teeth as showing through the exterior, just like right now I have my mouth closed. And if you x-rayed me, you would see my teeth through this. But so, see, I'm seeing the curvature of the lips of the mouth. I think. Like, oh, I think it's just the curvature. Like if you're, if you're going like, like that, you're going to see. Right? But you see, you just lowered thing. your jaw. You can't. Right. But, do but then when you, but then with I don't the chin know. Stretch, <laughs> but yeah, but you bring the bottom part of the face up with the yeah. chin strap. I see what you're saying. I, I see theoretically what you're saying. I just have to look for it and see if I see it. There. Take a look. Take a look. Yeah, it, yeah. It's the insight, as always, uh, Teddy. You're doing great work with your research and stuff. So, all right, but Omar, I want I want to open it up. It, look, it's the shroud isn't just about these teeth. Um, right, right, right. So, what is look? Forget about the science for a second. What's the or well, what is the evidence that convinces you this belonged to the historical Jesus, first of all? That's a good question. I've always just taken on an assumption that it was. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it, it's, it's who else would it be? You know, I, I think uh, Gary Habermash did that presentation where um, he had the numbers all broken out with a probability for each one. And it came to like, one in a hundred million that this was Jesus, you know, it wasn't Jesus, right? So it's just so, you know, all the elements of it, the the wound in the side, the, of course, the flagellation would probably go to different people, but, um, and the face looks like Jesus because we've been told for 2000 years, that's what he looks like, you know, and uh, of course the crown of thorns, you know, the wounds on the head. And um, we don't really know of really anyone else specific who was crucified so it's hard not to identify it with jesus because we don't have a litany of people that we could that we even know about who it could have been so our mind's going to want to think it's jesus no matter what you know just just based on the historical context of the piece how it's arrived to us you know it's always been said to be that and so you know it, it, the it's the, you could say confirmation bias but i think habermash makes a good case for that it would be jesus but then the biggest thing is it is the only burial linen of its kind so if it you know, and, and it, it appears to be miraculous. So if it, you know, who else would it be? You're not going to have, you know, you know, schmo blow from, you know, from, from uh, Jerusalem that nobody knows suddenly have this miraculous burial cloth. So there's just no one else it could go to. And of right. course, many, many Jews and Muslims have been buried in shrouds, you know, in terms of traditional burial. Right. Them. But we don't have any shrouds with the image on exactly. them. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. So who else is it going to belong to? If it belongs to someone, it belongs to someone, you know, purportedly divine. 
And not only that, and you know, although there were many crucifixion victims, most of them were not given a proper burial. No, they were thrown in the pit. Us with such an expensive cloth. Right, and such an expensive burial chamber. Yes, yes. And also with the flagellation, um, the scourge marks, there are so many of them that usually they would not, a lot of times they would either scourge you or crucify you. Now, I've heard some, read some inconsistent things, whether sometimes they may have scourged somebody just a little bit to get them compliant before they they go ahead and, mm-hmm. and nail them onto a cross. But regardless, uh, crucifixion was meant to be um, a dragged out process. And you didn't want to hurry up and expedite the death by scourging someone too badly. But in Christ's case... The scourging was particularly bad because right. Pontius Pilate was hoping that that would um, satisfy the Jews in, in order to uh, to save Christ from crucifixion, and so that's why he gave them gave him quite the. Uh, you know, I find that interesting too. Was, was that because of his wife? You know, I mean, think about. Romans, they killed people all the time. And and the ancient world was brutal. You know, when Alexander took Tyre, they didn't even leave the dogs alive. They killed everyone just as an example. I mean, it was a brutal world. And so you've got a guy who, first of all, is not native to the area. He's coming from Rome. He doesn't want to be there. He's mad because he's stuck in this outpost. He hates the Jews. I mean, he contempts them. He doesn't have any respect for them or understanding of them. And you got this guy who's... But he rebel- does want to keep them happy so as, so as to not have rebellion. on his But team. Right. But what I'm saying is that you've got this guy who's creating trouble. You know, a Roman emperor would just go off with his head. I don't care. I'm not going to go through this elaborate process to try to spare his life. I don't think they cared that much. But you know what? There, There is something to be said, perhaps, um, that Pontius Pilate, you know, had, as it said, that we all have a conscience, and that is, you know, God speaking within us. And mm-hmm. there's something particularly heinous about um, punishing or killing in somebody who is wrongfully accused. I think that speaks to just about everyone because we all think inherently like how badly sure. we would hate that. But I think, I think that Pilate thought that Jesus was rightfully accused, but getting the wrong punishment. Oh, you see, I think he, I think he, I, I um, think it, Jesus, you know, Jesus, you know, looked at him and said, you know, he said, you don't know what the truth is. And he, and he told him, I'm the Messiah, you know. I mean, didn't he not tell Pilate that? When Pilate asked him, maybe I'm mixing it up, but when Pilate asked him, look, are you the king of the Jews? He said, you say that. They say that. I didn't say that. You know, but then later Jesus, you know, basically tells him that he's God. Yeah, I... I think Pontius Pilate. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, I'll I'll just just Pilate had some sympathy. Um, Okay, so so I'll I'll just contribute to this. Here's my take. Um, It's kind of a a similar thing. So so yeah. So I actually don't forget Pilate's wife had that dream. God, right? And I think that played a role. 
there is also a bit of the sits and leave in. So, so we know the background of Pontius He was a bugger. He would not be the type to be wishy-washy at all. But there was an incident that happened, I think, in 32 AD, the year prior, with the Emperor Tiberius and Sejanus. And Sejanus got a little bit out of whack and had some issues with the Jew, with the Jews or something like that. Um, so Pilate still would have had that incident. Again, I, I don't remember the details offhand. And I think that played a role in why he's partly being wishy-washy. He's also heeding his wife having this strange dream. So he's he's not just automatically yeah, crucify the, the SOV. He's trying to, okay, I want to keep the population calm. I, I don't want to revolt because I remember mm. what happened last year when there was this huge revolt or something like that. I don't want mm. that to happen. So scourge, scourge the heck out of him and let's hope that'll satisfy them. And obviously it didn't, but. Okay. Yeah. All right. But that, but that's not typical for most crucifixion victims. So that is something, yeah. a special feature that we see on the shroud in terms yeah. of to distinguish it as being Christ's burial cloth as opposed to some random crucifixion victim. And we have, of course, the side wound, which was not typically right. done. And that's, we have that's the crown of thorns, which, you know, what other crucifixion victim was mocked as being king? Yeah, right. None, none that we know none, of. None that we know of. And and we have the fact that this uh, body in rigor mortis was somehow removed from the shroud with it before decomposition got on the cloth, without mm -hmm. presupposing how yeah. that that's still an indicator of Jesus because you know right. the, those from the dead. Right. All right. Well, well, Omar, I want to I want to turn it to you because this is the most important part on the discussion on the shroud, because look, I, I've had um, in response to this skeptical claim that only Christians are pro shroud. And I've brought on Arif Khan, the, the religious Muslim. I've brought on Barry Schwartz, who's a non-religious Jew. And I've brought on a non John Loken, just uh, the non-religious agnostic. They've all been pro shroud on the historical question, but not on the question of are the images miraculous? You're different. You're not a Christian, but you think that there is evidence that, yeah, the, the images were formed miraculously and are proof of the resurrection. So, well, you know, if they weren't performed miraculously, tell me how they were made. You know, now I understand Barry Schwartz's position and, and I don't want to speak for him. I think that I saw him give um, a TED talk on this where he was in a very different mood than he seems to typically be in his interviews. And he was saying that, you know, he felt that, you know, God had ordained him more or less to be the person who brings the information about the shroud to the world. And um, of course, I think that Ted talk was also at the Vatican. So maybe he was in a, in a different state of mind or was thinking about his audience a little differently. I don't know, but um I think with all the controversy around the Sturp team and the accusations unfairly that were made against them, um, that he, even if in his heart of hearts, he thinks it's miraculous, he'll take it to his grave because he doesn't want to be the cause of casting any dispersion or accusations of being unscientific. Uh, on the Sturp team that already haven't been thrown at them. He really wants to stick to the scientific rigor that they did their studies with. And I totally respect that. You know, one of the things, though, that I disagree with a lot of Shroud scholars about 
And that is that, I mean, this is just a simple fact. You can be biased and speak the truth at the same time. That's and true. So, because the truth is the truth regardless of whether you have a bias towards it or not. Yeah. So, for example, I grew up in the Greek Orthodox faith. Mm -hmm. So I obviously had a predisposition and was, uh, you know, our, our, brought up to believe certain things. Are Greek Orthodox pro-shroud generally, or is that just like a Catholic? They, I mean, no, I mean, it, and I don't know why people think it's Catholic because I mean it wasn't even in the hands of the Catholic Church until the nineteen eight the late nineteen eighties. I mean this was not a a Catholic thing. This I mean of but course the churches you know, that it was being housed in since the thirteen hundreds have all been Catholic churches, right? And it's Catholics now, attending the viewings, and it's a whole Catholic environment. But now I would say that the image of Edessa and the Shroud of Turin are the same thing. And that was um, in Constantinople with the Greek Orthodox, where they were controlling things. And so it has a long storied history of being under Orthodox control. Um, mm. Yeah, it did come from Antioch to, um, yeah. I mean, and so, uh, but, Surprisingly and shockingly, I don't find the Orthodox talking about the Shroud very much. I, I'm, I'm trying to get them interested in it and, and aware. I, I don't, it, it's just not really talked about much. And perhaps it's because it, even they see it wrongfully as a Catholic thing. It's not a Catholic thing, it's a God thing. It is a miracle that, and a gift that remains on this or I mean that blows my mind I mean most of the time with miracles it happens and then it's gone we have a lasting miracle that has been tested and had sticky tape put on it and had all sorts of machines and tools and equipment examining it up close we've done not we as me but you know microchemical analyses by people who were absolutely obsessive compulsive with their work, Heller and Adler. Um, and it is still here. And, and the shroud, it's a vessel that contains the blood of Christ. And when I think about how on this earth, in Turin, Italy, there is something that still holds part of what was in Christ's body, mm -hmm. his, his sacred redemptive blood. That blows my mind. It does. It's like a piece of Christ is still with us. And I have, I have not had the privilege of um, being in the presence of the shroud yet, but there's talk that it might be on exhibit in 2025. And if so, then, you know, God willing, wild horses won't be able to keep me away from that. But I mean, to, to think of being in the presence of Christ's blood. And then, you know, I've had several Orthodox priests when I discuss this with them, 
they'll tell me, yes, but we have, you know, the blood of Christ every Sunday um, with the Holy Eucharist. And while I do believe in, in, the, in the transubstantiation of the bread and the wine in, t- in terms of it becoming uh, not physically, but metaphysically the body and blood of Christ. And that's not just as the Greeks, as the Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholics believe, it's not just symbolic. It has transformed, but its physical nature still looks like bread and wine. But when you're consuming it, you are consuming that, the, the body and blood of Christ. However, and as obviously very special as that is, that is, you know, a medical a metaphysical thing that happens every Sunday, but the blood that is on the Holy shroud that happened once. Mm-hmm. And that happened at the moment of Christ's redeeming all of humanity. And so I don't apologize for holding that in an extra special mm-hmm. place. No, Omar. Oh Omar, I'm, I'm kind of curious from you. So I, I did want to kind of get your details. So you mentioned, look, uh, there is no explanation uh, for the images that you buy. And, and you've kind of followed along my Shroud series evaluating the various image forms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious, what, what is it exactly that does convince you? Are you convinced by like a radiation hypothesis or? You know, you- I, I don't know. I, I For a little while, I like the radiation hypothesis. Now I'm not so sure about it. It's hard to say. Um, people have, and, and I'm not a physicist. And, you know, Rucker is a physicist and he did all his work and his analysis. And, and you know, you got to love him for it. That's awesome. And, and if it bears out to be true after analysis, that would be, I think, really cool vindication for him. Um, but for right now, it's a hypothesis, right? It's it's an untested hypothesis because he would need samples from other parts of the cloth to really be able to test that hypothesis. But what I can say is this, even if 500 years from now, we have the technology and the kind of printing and things where we could recreate an absolutely perfect, indistinguishable replica of the shroud. They didn't have it in 1300. Yeah. So it just doesn't matter, right? That there is no process that from this point forward, I think we have exhausted every process that would have been available to someone in the 1300s and beyond. So, I don't feel like, I mean, I think it would be cool to find out how it was made and we may never find out how it actually was put on the cloth. And I don't think it really matters. You know, it's not necessary. It's cool, but not necessary. What's necessary to know is that the technology to create it as far as we can tell did not exist, you know, uh, up to this time does not exist. And I don't think it's radiation because I I think it's I think that that um, how well the uh, the image came out that Giulio Fonti and his team did with the Corona discharge I mean because that they they reproduced the 
the body image, perhaps to, I don't know, maybe 80% closeness. I mean, it was, it was pretty good. It wasn't perfect, but, um, but I think that what that tells us is that it was light that formed this image. Mm -hmm. And what else would it be? God is light. That's what the Bible tells us. And so once again, we're given enough clues, enough really strong hints. Here's, here's what it is, but we're never going to be able to figure out precisely what it is in a way that it can be reproduced because then it would be of this world. And right. God is, I think, smart and clever enough to realize that if, if man can one day reproduce it, then this thing will no longer cause the awe and inspire the awe in people that it does. I, I don't know about that. It. I think even if we could reproduce it, the fact mm -hmm. that it couldn't have been produced because of the time in which we historically at least know it appeared in the 1300s. And, and I agree with you and other people, it must go further back than that because there's all those references to a burial cloth. And Paul makes his references. Have you not seen the image of our Lord? You know, so, um, you know, of course. And you know, you know, Galatians, another little, there are all these little hints. And I've, I recently, uh, less than a year ago, it don't, Pond on me something very special. Mm -hmm. Galatians 3 1, which is that verse. That's uh, my show, right? Right, Teddy? We're and that you. and that is indicative of the Trinity, three in one, one in three. And then I started uh, You're stretching. You're stretching. Because well, those you know numbers were ascribed know, later. Those were given later. That's that's I numerology. Know, but God You're stretching. <laughs> For knowledge, you don't think God can can cause you're stretching. Yeah, it could cause here. a lot of things, but you're stretching. But here's another. <laughs> here's another little God wink. That's okay. actually a rather big one. Think about the the weave on the cloth. It's a three to one herringbone weave. <laughs> I don't think that's you're stretching. You're stretching. It's it's cool, but you're stretching. I mean. <laughs> All right, well, well, Omar, one, one thing um, I want to kind of transition fr mm -hmm. from the shroud. We, we've spent a lot of time and got your take on the shroud, but that's not it for you because you also believe that the historical evidence, things like the minimal facts, or, or did I get that wrong? Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 you know, the minimal, okay, there go my words. <laughs> the minimal facts uh, that Gary Habermash does is pretty, pretty cool and really I think it comes down, you know, you could subtract almost all the minimal facts. And like I told you before that I've seen him go from, I think, 12 and progressively shrinking it down as people have taken exception with, with the facts. And he's, they've been kind of taking bricks out of the wall, but, and he's been shrinking it, but really it is the, the transformation in, uh, you know, uh, Peter, Paul, and James that uh, really speak about this, uh, that, that really tell you something had to happen mm -hmm. for these people to be, you know, to go from hiding in a closet, not wanting to show their face, 
and to being willing to be whipped, scourged, dragged through the streets, beaten, crucified, stoned, you know, attacked in any number of ways. I mean, either they were so crazy, you know, that they were willing to do it. And there are crazy people in the world who will do crazy things just to feel justified. Or they had something, a real transformative experience happen to them. Well, it's and, like what they say, nobody's going to, nobody's going to knowingly die for a lie. Well, you know, but a crazy person can convince themselves that a lie is the truth. Well, but you have they do you that have all the time. But I don't think all these people were crazy. Paul right, right. is look, just look at Paul. Look at his There's writing. He is so rational. He is such a clear thinker. He's so well studied. And he's just not that guy. You know, he's not some raving lunatic on the street corner. So you really have to pay attention. You know, what happened to these people to to make them have this transformation? So let me ask you, Omar. Um, especially since you, you, if I understand you correctly, you do think there is, um, a supernatural aspect to the Shroud of Turin. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. So why are you not a Christian? Or <laughs> I, I presume that you're not a Christian. I'm interested in it. I'm interested in it. My, my issue comes with, not with the Shroud, not with Jesus, not, not with the New Testament, my issue is with, um, uh, and, and, and Dale and I've talked about this, is things like a worldwide flood that didn't happen, all of humanity going back to two people. There are, there are things which are, I think, clearly mythological that are held up in the scripture as being um, facts. And um, as far as we can tell today, they're just not. And I so there's actually some, um, I, I haven't studied it in depth, but it seems like two or three years ago, I came across something on the internet in a lecture uh, where they were talking about how they are finding evidence of a, a flood. Well, now the flood's really fascinating. So there's a guy named um, Graham Hancock, who's done a lot of research on this. He's a brilliant dude. And um, he uh, was a BBC reporter and he became interested in a, um, in uh, a place called Gobleki Tepe, which is from, uh, it's, it's a datable artifact of the megalithic era that mm is from around 10,600 BC, something like that. And uh, un, uh, inarguably, uh, um, this incredible temple complex that was built when people were supposed to be hunter-gatherers. And um, his opinion is that he pulls different things together. And um, he believes that there was an earlier civilization on Earth before our current iteration of humanity um, or civilization, um, and that a large parts of it were wiped out by a flood. And we have evidence of this flood now having been caused by a comet strike that we were in 12,000 years ago. We were in a period called the Younger Dryas, which is an interglacial period, but it was still a partial ice age. And the Northern hemisphere was covered in this incredibly thin, maybe a mile thick layer of ice. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, a comet struck came into the atmosphere, broke into multiple parts, and struck it across North America and uh, Northern Europe, and causing the ice sheets to instantaneously melt, collapse, and flood uh, North American continent. Um, with, well, not completely, but to create a huge flood, and then to also flood out large portions of Europe. Mm -hmm. And so we know that there was that flood, but it wasn't a pole to pole universal flood that buried absolutely everything in existence. Okay, but let's look at it this way. I, I, I just, I don't remember what the details were about the flood that I just, the flood evidence that I just briefly heard about, you know, two mm -hmm. years ago or so on the internet. But I'm sure if somebody was interested in it, they can research right. it. It was but probably that because because uh, geologists and environmental scientists and the, a huge stack of people got together and have signed off on the comet theory. Now it's 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 no, pretty no, much no, becoming no, canon. Just so you know, Teddy, this is this is why we were supposed to have Travis here, and he. He betrayed me, Gur, to you, uh, Travis. <laughs> no, he, he has to work today. But um, Omar, like I said, I, I would love if I can get him to come on in a future show. We can talk specifically about this. That would be super. Yeah, that'd be great. He, he is an expert. He works for Reasons to Believe, which is an organization that specializes in this creation, evolution, and flood debate. Um, oh, um, one thing before I uh, go back to Omar, I have one question. Teddy, I actually have a question, couple questions for you. So. Uh, number one, I'm sort of curious. Um, so it sounds like number one on this creation evolution issue, you you are a young Earth creationist. Would you take a, no, no? no. Okay. I I just I mean, I I believe dinosaurs and all of that. Okay. Let, let me ask you a question, Dale, because I I actually have a question. Um, my question is: Does at any place in the Old or New Testament is there an explicit statement that says every word of scripture is literally factually true no or is that an interpretation or an assumption that people have made because of challenges to faith over many you know over thousands of years and a kind of a need to shore up and bolster a bolster faith in the scriptures so there's there is no explicit verse anywhere in the bible that explicitly says that every word in scripture is true uh, nor does it teach that inerrant biblical inerrancy is true. So people people try to infer that there are a couple scriptures, such as Jesus' words, talking about you know scripture can't be broken and every jot or tittle will be preserved. What about it? it isn't it in the Bible that it, that it's God breathed? I believe yes, that's in the Bible. But that's inspiration. So I believe the Bible. Uh, yeah, but what does God breathe mean? You can say it's inspired, but inspiration can run a gamut, right? You well, know. Well, and so that ought to, um, when you, for example, I remember one of the definitions of the word literal is you must also look at things in context to do course, a proper literal. So there are, for example, in Genesis, uh, there is, a, it's a different genre than Proverbs right. and some of the other books. And so in Genesis, it, I mean, it's not mythology, but it has more of that story-like feel. And so I'm really not sure 
whether Adam and Eve literally exist. I, I tend to lean towards, I think that they did, but I mean, it could just be trying to be an explanation in terms of the whole Garden of Eden scenario. I'm not positive if it actually happened that way or if that is trying to convey a concept to right. us to understand. Well, so, yeah. but it doesn't, it doesn't really matter Honestly, I'm not really sure why it would matter if, if given all of the, the other evidence. And that's the reason why I find the, the Shroud of Turin so important because mm -hmm. it gives so much evidence to the Bible's, well, and remember the Bible wasn't put together as a whole book. They're individual right. testimonies. Many, many books and yeah, and yeah. so the Jewish um, Bible is all different. So which old. which magnifies its credibility because you have so much corroborative evidence about the same story. It for example, you can get people who study the shroud writing on a certain topic and you will see the same things happening that you see even with the gospels where people say well it wasn't exactly the same well it's it's because different things uh seem more significant to people oh i i totally get that i mean yeah, I'm, I'm not gonna i'm not going to say that you know uh, Mark says there were two people and, you know, uh, Matthew says, well, there were three people and therefore there's this contradiction and the whole thing is worthless. I mean, th that's just stupid. Because, I mean, some, some eight, many atheists will. I know they, they, they're desperate. They're desperate to disprove right. it. And, you know, they're desperate to try to bring anything they can against it. And they don't want to do the legwork that it would really take you know, if they were to do it. So they just look for the most quickest superficial thing that they can use in as excuse to dismiss it. And the thing is, the, the thing that I find to be so shocking is... Yeah, finish, is your thought, then. Okay. finish your thought over the next couple of minutes, but okay. um, I, I do have a question for you, Teddy, and a question for Omar after that. So I want to make sure we... Um, uh, sure, yeah, just a real quick thing. Um, so a lot of times people will try to say wrongly that it is a circular argument to show that the shroud uh, and its evidence and, and what it is proves the veracity of and credibility of the gospels and vice versa. And they say that that's a circular argument and people that say that do not understand what a circular argument is. Yeah. That is that is corroborate they, these yes, two corroborating independent evidence. because because they are independent pieces of evidence they corroborate each other and when we talk about the gospels and the Bible and then the Old Testament with the prophecies of mm -hmm. what was going to happen to Christ these are all bits of information that corroborate again with each other to create a circumstantial case. And in, for example, in a criminal trial, a lot of times people think that, um, that the most compelling evidence is direct evidence from an eyewitness. And actually, that's not necessarily the case because a lot yeah. of times eyewitness testimony can be garbage. They misidentify people, or they're the so time. shocked or whatever. Um, a lot of times uh, in, in cases, especially murder cases where you don't have a vic the victim who's still alive, 
what's created is a circumstantial case. But in order for a circumstantial case to convict someone, there has to be a web of evidence that is woven so tightly yes. as to not permit any other logical explanation, any other right. reasonable logical explanation. explanation. Right. And, and with that, we certainly have that with the shroud, especially as corroborated with the gospels and the Old mm -hmm. Testament prophecies. It's mind blowing, the evidence. Well, and that's, that's, there is one thing that, that does kind of you know, niggle at me is, and, and I've said this from the beginning of, of my interest in studying Christianity, is that there is a blackout zone from 30 AD to 100 AD, thereabouts, where we don't have anything in writing, and we don't know what was really said. And then the church, because a lot of it was, is my, my, question about this is coming from a guy named uh i think his name is marcus vincent who talks about um marcion and how he suddenly appeared in rome with 10 letters or 12 letters of paul and a new testament and his own gospel and the roman fathers didn't really have anything organized in writing and they kind of flipped out because they said oh this guy's beat us to the punch and no one really took Paul seriously at that point either. And, uh, you know, just, just from the community. But when he came in with these letters and he came in with his gospel, that they kind of snatched that stuff up. You know, they realized, you know, the, the, the uh, not severity, but the, uh, the incredible quality of Paul's work and the damage that this guy's personal New Testament that where he, I guess, either, you know, they say that he took, uh, I don't know if it was, uh, no, it was uh, Luke. He took Luke, inserted a bunch of stuff in it that they had to take out. Now, his claim is that this was what Luke's gospel really was, and they were taking it out to create their own Christianity. And there's this whole muddled period around 100 AD where, you know, you don't really know what happened. And then you have a gospel that is produced shortly after that time. You get your four gospels and your epistles, and um, it's canonized. And then from there, all the evidence that you hear people talk about, like James White and different people, the way that the Bible was spread in so many different places, and that's what preserved it. Well, it preserved that gospel that came out in the second century but we don't know what was really there between 30 a.d and that time See, I, so that so I'll, I'll respond to that if it, is that okay teddy if you mind if sure. i so so that, i'd like to add on afterwards but okay well re remember i've got questions that i think are important for both of you but okay you can add on so here here's my take so so number one i'm curious as to where you get you're dating from because in the first place most biblical scholars would not say the gospels were post 100 AD right Marcion the first person to be given the label heretic was in the mid second century 140 I think 130 yeah yeah he was in he was in the second century and um you know basically this guy Marcus Vincent's argument is that the four gospels the canon that we have now was compiled in reaction to Marcion. 
Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I guess, I, yeah, like to combat that, I would just say I find that argument not convincing. I do think we have very firm evidence that the Gospels, as mm-hmm. we have them, are first century. Um, well, not that there weren't written things, not that not that there weren't, you know, for example, Paul's epistles, we know they existed, you know, you know, from around, at least from around 50 AD. I mean, so, but, and we have fragments, but we don't have the complete canonized gospel before the second century. Oh, you mean like, so putting them all together as like... Putting them all together, having, you know, a complete, we have parchments we have fragments we've got a a piece of john and a piece of this and p52 and p45 and these little bits and pieces that we assemble as evidence for the canonized gospel that we have now but there is no through line or a complete body or opus of work connecting those fragments to that gospel. It's it's an inference that we're making. But, but why do we need that if we if we know why that why do we need that? Well, I mean, you're a lawyer. So if if I if it's a murder trial and um, you know, you only have a couple fragments of evidence of what was actually going on at the time of a murder, say there was a video camera that was fritzing in and out and the camera only showed you bits and pieces, and then you have an eyewitness who came by after the fact and said, I've got the whole story, I'll tell you everything, would not your first question be, how do we connect the fragmentary evidence with the complete, you know, our, our latest complete account? Well, my, my point is, is that the earliest fragmentary evidence is evidence that all of that existed in a, in a much earlier time. It doesn't need to be all put together. It's not that it didn't exist. The question is, what form did it exist in? What was the canon? But I don't think What's that- actually the, thought at the time. I don't think that the, that the form matters, because to me, what matters is the, um, the eyewitness testimony. And, as, and, and if you can get that to as early as possible, then that gives credibility to that testimony, it doesn't need to be, uh, you know, put together and 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 bound with all of the other things well, to, yeah. to see if it legitimate. Let me maybe ask you ask you this, and then again, I, I have okay. these questions. I never get to get to them, but no, I, I definitely want to get to your questions too. Um, okay, so I hear what you're saying. You you do recognize the vast majority of biblical scholars, regardless, not just Christian. They, mm-hmm. they don't see this problem, right? They, they even scholars like Bart Ehrman would fully affirm, yeah, what has been preserved? These were the original gospels. Yes, we only have fragmentary papyrus that dates to 125 or later, but no one they don't doubt. Yes, the the Gospel of John as we have it today was that was the original we're about 95 percent certain so like what do you make of scholars like bart airman they don't have this problem well no i watched i watched bart airman do a very long debate with james white where unfortunately both of them were talking past each other and neither one of them addressed the other one's points um but airman's point in that debate was he said that we don't really know what what we know 
what's said in the canonical gospels that we have, but we don't know what existed before, what exactly form it took before that time. So just to paint a picture, a possible scenario um, <clears throat> is that uh, Jesus was a rabbi and a very holy person, and he was real and he was crucified and he taught a lot of things. But then later people came along and said, you know what? He's so great. He actually should, be. he's God. And then went in and inserted things into the text and painted it in and around the existing words. And then that was canonized as gospel. For example, uh, the Trinity is never mentioned in the Bible, except in John. And I believe that verse has been proven to be an interpolation. In Genesis. Does it, well, I mean, does it say there's a trinity? Well, it, it talks about Christ. It talks about Jesus mm -hmm. is the word. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this to deny mm -hmm. the, the, the possibility that Jesus is God. I'm not trying to say, oh, it's all fake. You see, you see, you see. I'm saying that it leaves a big open question mark. Um, uh, for example, I saw this happen in the Hare Krishnas. Mm -hmm. um, they had a guru who started the movement, brought it to the United States. He stated emphatically over and over again, do not worship me as God. I am your teacher. I am not God. I am not God. He said it hundreds and thousands of times because he knew that people like to personality cults. They want to worship people. Just sure. like Paul said, Paul said, you're not worshiping Paul. You're not worshiping Cephas. You're not worshiping this person or that person. You are worshiping Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, people who teach and who are honest know that people are going to make this mistake and they go out of their way to clarify themselves unless they want to people to believe they're God. Yeah. And, uh, I met one of Prabhupada's personal disciples. The guy had been there from the beginning. He said, I know he said all of that, but I believe he's an incarnation. It's like, how many times does the guy have to tell you, right? So people can do that because they become so zealous and so emotional and so overwrought with their emotions that they will jump and make that conclusion. So one could paint a case that Jesus was a prophet, essentially, who was made into God after the fact by people interpolating things that he said. And then by the time it was canonized, the intermixture of historical fact and interpolation became so interwoven that you can't separate them. Well, but and no, I, think that, I think that's Vincent's argument. But I'm not, a, I'm not a biblical scholar, so... You well, know, what, one thing I would, I would recommend that was helpful on this specific question, taking it back and tracing it through the oral period, um, mm -hmm. I really like Dr. Richard Bauckham's work, where he talks about the divine identity, and the Bible does have verses talking about the Trinity, where, whereby Jesus is said to share the divine identity of God the Father, and mm -hmm. you know, I, I can send you various sources, I've done shows. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with Bauckham. Oh, he's, he's an excellent scholar. Yeah, he, he's done great debates. Some of my favorites on Unbelievable with James Crossley, who's an atheist biblical scholar. Oh, yeah, I don't know. No, wait, I'm thinking of a different guy. James Crossley. Who's, who's oh, the little him. Irish guy? Um, no. You're uh, thinking John Lennox? Huh? You're thinking John Lennox? No, his name starts with a C. Uh, 
he's John Dominic Crossley, no? Yeah, that guy, Dominic Crossley. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, I've heard him talk. Boy, he likes to hear himself talk. <laughs> he, well, he's <laughs> of the Jesus Seminar, right? So he, he's not a friend of, of Christian, mm-hmm. evangelical yeah. Christians, I would say. But mm-hmm. all right, cool. Uh, so, so yeah, I'll send you that. So here, here's my long-awaited questions. First, starting with you, Teddy, um, mm-hmm. because every time you're on, when it comes to evidence for Christianity, um, you're always going on about the shroud. Great. All of us, all three of us here agree with that. But I, I asked Omar about, forget the shroud for a second. Let's take that away. He he and I are also convinced based on the historical evidence, you know, arguments by people like Mike Lacona, uh, Craig Diener, Gary Habermas. Uh, I've never heard you. I'm curious. Do you think that the historical evidence is good enough to make a case? Or do you think, no, it, it's only the shroud that can... No, no. I, I absolutely think that the historical evidence is great but it requires more faith i mean it'll take you pretty high in terms of 100 percent, but it doesn't get you as i i mean i'm convinced that when you when you take the historical evidence and then you put in the shroud i believe there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt that the christian god is real without the shroud though would you say that the historical evidence is more probable than not still or oh absolutely i i would still put it very high but not proof beyond a reasonable doubt i i would say um you know maybe 85 percent 90 percent but i'm just telling you that even even having known the historical evidence and especially you know as i've read about it more the past couple of years um i I do find it very convincing but for example there are times there are moments in one's life where you know with with illness or or when you might face death or something when the question of is god really really real is heaven really real and you're scared and and when you're facing a life-threatening situation that question becomes very very different than when one just you know we're we're you know here talking about stuff and we're just having not just having but we're having an important discussion but there's not this critical aspect to us, but, but when you're in a life-threatening situation, you know, like they say, there are no atheists in a foxhole. Um, when you're having a, a crisis, especially one involving the potential uh, and especially an immediate or close to immediate threat of death, the question of God's existence takes on a whole different character whole different and meaning. importance. And, um, and I've, I've experienced that personally. And I know that my knowledge of the shroud, when I had just those fleeting thoughts of, you know, getting spooked and thinking, is God really, really real? And all I had to do was remind myself of the shroud evidence, the scientific evidence, along with the historical, but that scientific evidence showing that 
that what is on that cloth cannot and has not to this day been able to be reproduced with all of its special. Mm -hmm. That is so, so powerful. And, and when I was in this crisis, and this was back in 2018 with the health crisis, and and just making a very low point in my life i'm very scared it, to be able to just think and tell myself to remind myself of the evidence and i was immediately filled with calm mm -hmm. and confidence in the truth that the Christian God is real and that heaven is real. And that is what has put me on this path that I have been on. I had even after my health crisis in 2018, I had another crisis that lasted for another year where I became a caretaker for my uncle. And then he got strong and he moved back um, home. Not that we had wanted him to, but he, he just, he lived in out of state. But as soon as as those things lifted off of me, those responsibilities and those crises. I, I had been thinking for many years, maybe to write a book about the shroud. I've always been interested in it. But I had not been active. I mean, if I was in a, in a social situation, an issue of religion came up, I would talk about the shroud. Um, I've had a friend of mine, a very close dear friend of mine that was, was now in his 80s, that um, he was brought up a Christian, but uh, lost his faith and became an agnostic. And I, uh, I helped bring him to Christ through the shroud of it. He was very skeptical, very skeptical. It, it, it took a, quite a campaign on my behalf where I, I inundated him with shout of it, but he, he was a true seeker and was interested. And so he would read, but he's always questioning this and that, but finally it just became so overwhelming. And he didn't have an agenda. He wasn't angry with God. He didn't have anything against God. He just needed the evidence. He was very scientifically oriented and he just needed the evidence. And I gave it to him. And finally, he just, he, you know, he saw what was right in front of his face. But, but again, as a lawyer, I can't help. And, and, and it's not because I'm a lawyer. It's my nature. I can't help but, but war game every scenario. Even with my shroud research, I look at one thing and I'm like, well, what, but what about this? I mean, it, and, and that's, it helps me very much so in being a lawyer because I always looked to figure out what is my opponent going to say in response to if I say this, they're going to say that. My, my uncle as a kid taught me how to play chess. And so you got to think several moves in advance. But, but so my mind 
always goes, trust me when I tell you, if the shroud evidence wasn't very convincing, I would not be convinced. And the fact that in that time of crisis, when I was so desperate and I was so scared, that that, that gave me immediate peace after I just reminded myself. Because how can it not be true, given all of the evidence? And, and honestly, the most important evidence that we have concerning the Shroud's authenticity came from a Jew, Dr. <laughs> Alan Adler, someone who did not have a dog in the fight. He wasn't a Christian and he was a blood expert. And it is so overwhelming that that immediately just gave me that sense of calm. And I can assure you, if it wasn't that overwhelming, I would not have had that sense of immediate true calm and peace within me. And and I didn't want I still didn't want to leave this earl this world too early, so it's not that I still didn't have distress, but it's extremely comforting to know that there is something beyond this world and to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt that it is real and and so for me the number one evidence of christianity being true is the shroud and what should be more powerful than the image of god incarnate that is on something that is physical, yet the image is created in a supernatural way and it has Christ's blood on it and it still exists today. And we have threads and, and even dusts from the shroud that have blood on it and people are still examining it and it's still with that's it's stunning and the people who who just don't accept it it's to their detriment and it's to their the biggest detriment aside from I mean because I do believe that that there is this thing called hell and that there is this thing called heaven and I don't know exactly what heaven and hell are going to be like, but I sure do know that I don't want anything to do with what hell, what is involved with hell. Yeah. Um, but my concern is for people who, who, who brush off the evidence, my concern is one, the issue of hell for them, but, but then even just while they are on earth, they are robbing themselves of the knowledge of God, not just the faith of God. I see many Christians who are, some Christians tend to be the most uh, active uh, people against the shroud. And I believe it comes from this warped sense of, um, 
wanting to look like, oh, I don't need physical evidence. I don't need scientific evidence of God's existence. You know, I don't want to be like doubting Thomas. I want to be, you know, the person that believes without evidence. And yes, that's good. But again, God gave this to us. This is a miracle that is meant for our comfort and our enjoyment and also to be used to help bring non-believers to Christ. I think so, that, um, you know, it's not just that. That's one reason they do it. And the other reason is they're afraid of investing their faith in it, then later finding out, oh, it was a fake. You know, they, they don't want to be put in the position of feeling foolish. And I think Hugh Ferry comes from that camp. You know, he he used to believe in it. He said he, he never. He's. I've he asked said him he about did. That. He said, he, yeah. He well, at least of, in the interviews, he said he did. But then I guess he had a crisis. Now he wants to disprove it. But, um, you know, I want to kind of circle back around. I'm talking about the the you know the war gaming, um, and I'm going to give you the reason why I'm I, I refute the whole case that I just made for you about Marcus Vincent, because that was earlier in my thinking. But um, there's something internally in Paul's epistles that, um, and, and I talked about this earlier in, 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 our, in our chat, but he raises the bar on the human relationship with God. And, and he doesn't do it. Jesus does it. But he is obviously communicating the idea to us. But he raises the bar on the idea of love of God and communion with God and what it means to not just follow something ritualistically or because you're supposed to or because you want your sins forgiven, but out of love. And that is, I, I think that that, <clears throat> for me, is the most compelling argument for the consistent, for, not for the consistent, for the validity of the Gospels as we have them, even though there is a big time gap that I really dislike. But I think the fact that what came out is a new level or way of approaching God that you wouldn't come up with that by fakery guesswork or or interpolating something that happened and making up something new you you know it, it, he brought it to am I making any sense he brought it to another level and that kind of self-validates the that that Christology that's in the gospels I but you know with me and, and I do find all of that very convincing, but that wouldn't give me the certainty that I have mm -hmm. of God's mm -hmm. existence that I have with the shroud. Well, thing, I, I, because I'm just that. Teddy, if, if you don't mind, I, again, I do have a question for Omar that's very important. But Oh, yeah, I've been waiting for this one. Um, so, so just to cap off what you're saying, Teddy, though, I hear what you're saying. I'm really glad that I got that clarification that uh, my goodness, you're even stronger than me, that even without the shroud, the historical evidence, you know, the, the Gary Habermas type argument and stuff like that, that alone is also convincing to you. It's not as strong. It doesn't give us the proof beyond reasonable doubt as to your mind that the shroud does. 
but there's also that. And I, I want that to be there for the audience too, because even, even if you're not, so be open to all the evidence, but if you're not convinced by the shroud, don't be like, oh, well, it's game over for Christianity. Maybe you'll be convinced by this other evidence as well. So I, I just want the audience to be open to all the evidence. And, and Right, because if the audience members are going to be honest about what we accept as as factual history, the evidence from the uh, the gospels, the manuscripts, the, I mean, all of that is, is history. And aside, I mean, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant in terms of looking at it in a cold calculated way, whether it has um, religious overtones, it is still history. And these are manuscripts that are historical and there's far more evidence um, pointing to the legitimacy of, you know, this eyewitness testimony that we have spanning so many years ago, far more that far more evidence proving that than that Julius Caesar existed, that Abraham Lincoln existed, that all of these other people that we take for granted existed. We, we assume, or, or, you know, it doesn't take that much study to, for us to believe that King Tut's tomb is king tuts and and actually, that it's legitimate and things it's like that tomb, but it's like it's, a, it's actually not his tomb he was buried in uh somebody they they stuffed him in the wrong tomb kind of they, yeah. i think they were in a rush right because they didn't expect him to die and his tomb wasn't finished yeah and they didn't the really care because they didn't like him anyway <laughs> i didn't know that <laughs> uh i mean i like documentaries but all right cool so all right so omar um okay so obviously we've been spending a heck of a lot of time looking at the evident uh evidences that attest to the truth of christianity and and on that front you seem to be on on the same board kind of thing but i want to grasp from your knowledge obviously you you spent a lot of time in hinduism and you you've been all over the place in a lot of places so what's your take in terms of comparing that to Hinduism or the evidences for other religions, how, how does the evidence from the resurrection or the shroud compare to what you've seen, you know, in terms of evidences for these other religions? Right. Well, the evidence for Hinduism that was, that made it compelling for me was the philosophical content, the rigorous, I've never seen a religion, I have to say, that had the same rigorous epistemology, ontology. They have books that could, libraries of, of books on ontology and epistemology in Hinduism. It's not, there's so much to it that when you take a comparative religion class in college and you get your one little chapter and you learn about, you know, Vishnu, Brahma and Shiva and the creator and the maintainer and the destroyer. And you learn these little snippety things. You learn absolutely nothing about it. They have branches and branches of philosophy and of, you know, theology that they spent thousands of years working out and they were brilliant people. You know, these are the people who invented algebra. They invented the zero. They were the first astronomers. They were very brilliant people. And they had a, a, a brilliant uh, philosophical system and explanation that in itself is just airtight, uh, just philosophically and ontologically. Um, uh Christianity, what I think is really compelling about it 
is the fact that Jesus was a real guy. He was real. Mm -hmm. And the effect that he had was real and tangible. The people that he affected, you know, like I was saying earlier, his, his, uh, his apostles um, is irrefutable. And um, even if it doesn't, you know, even if, and, and I actually, I like the fact that even Jesus, when he speaks in the gospels, even Paul and his epistles, they don't get off into a big philosophical tangent. They don't, because you have to also consider who they're talking to, right? You know, the only intelligent, really intelligent, educated, worldly people that Jesus was talking to hated him. Mm. So what does he have to say to them? What is he going to sit down and talk with them about? He's going to show them the error of their way, right? He's going to, you know, give the parables confuse them, confound them, answer their questions in a way that they never expected, and just basically brush them off. And the people he was addressing were pretty much simple, earthy people who were, you know, sincere and open and wanted a solution for their problems. And so Christianity, in its origin, of course, later you get Thomas Aquinas and all these people, but in its origin was not a super philosophical tradition. It was about God, man, and the loving relationship between them. And it has a sincerity and a power to it. And Paul talks about that. He says, he even says, I don't remember where it was, if it was Romans or Corinthians, where he says, um, I'm not going to essentially disempower Jesus and Christianity by dragging it into philosophy. I, I know I'm reinterpreting his words, I'm rephrasing it, but that's the essence of what he says. He says, I'm not going to, you know, I, I don't want to just be a clever talker and a sophist. I want to speak to the heart and I want to convey the power of this and not just wind up in the weeds. So, I think that that is something that earnestness and that higher vision is something I find really compelling about Christianity. And there is a historical facticity to it that's undeniable, unless you're a complete joker and you try to be a mythicist, which is just... <laughs> yeah, I know that. You know, the most atheistic scholars will tell you that mythicism is just idiotic. You know, I mean, I, I just watched Bartram and the other day just slapping around mythicism <laughs> and saying, look, you're just making a fool out of yourself if you believe this. You're just <laughs> you're humiliating yourself. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Cool. Well, I, th I think that's good for now. Uh, Omar, I'll ask you. Obviously, you're you're the main focus of the show. I, I, I didn't scheduled this for your benefit in that. Um, and um, yeah, do, do you think there's anything I left out of this particular show? Obviously, you're going to come back. I'm hoping to bring Travis to address. Yeah, I think we have lots of threads to talk about, but I don't think anything particularly has been, you know, unaddressed of the things that we've been talking about. There's lots of more things to talk about, but I, I feel like it was a, it's been a pretty, pretty cool conversation. 
Awesome. And and I really appreciate you coming on, Teddy. I mean, I thank you. I, I really like you. I like your sincerity and your earnestness. And you know, I've watched a couple of your debates on the Shroud and your discussions. And um, I, I I really I just I just like the way you carry yourself about it. And thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure meeting you and talking. Thank you. It's nice you. meeting you too. I enjoyed it. Yeah, you too, Dale. And, oh, okay. Yeah, Dale, I'll you're awesome. You, you know, without you, you know, your your real secrets forum is is one I think of of and you know I I don't want to over flatter, but I think it's one of the best ones for that I've seen for Christianity on on the on on YouTube and on the internet. Um, I love Unbelievable. I think, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, Justin. Justin Bradley. Um, yeah, he's super. I mean, he's just such a thoughtful and good person. Um, I love Mike Winger. I think he's an awesome guy. Um, I like uh, Leeton Flowers. You know, there are a number of people who are trying really hard and sincerely and to bring out a rigorous and clear exposition of 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 this for people. And I think you're one of them and I really appreciate your show. Awesome. Yeah. Like, like I said, that, that means honestly the word, the world to me kind of hearing that from you guys and stuff like that. Cause I, I do put a lot of work into these and I, like I was telling, I, I don't know if I told you on the show or outside before the show, but um, yeah, my main goal is look, I, I spent years doing this research and it, it allowed me to come to faith kind of thing. And I want to share that with, you know, here mm -hmm. are my reasons. It's all to you for, for free. You know, Gary Habermas was a huge influence on me. And I, I love that he gives his things for free. You know what I mean? Like he'll mm -hmm. have chapters or entire books. Um, I want to do that. I, nothing behind a paywall. I want it free for everyone to oh, decide for themselves. Did you find out from him the answer to our question about when his first volume of his opus is actually going to be published and if it went to the printer or not? Remember I told you I heard him say that he said it's delivered to the printer and he can take a breath before he starts his next thing. And you said, oh, it's not going out, not coming out until 2025. Uh, well, uh, and then you were going to write him. It's so, so it is confirmed February 2024. I didn't get confirmation about did he send it to the publisher or not um so yeah I, I yeah i didn't get the confirmation on that but it's definitely february 2024 um okay one to expect volume one okay, okay and that's just on the resurrection right yeah it's it's this is everything this is a massive <clears throat> uh thing of all the research on the resurrection he has stuff on there's going to be stuff on the shroud of turin in there as well so mm -hmm. yeah um, but obviously the, the main thing is, look, he's proving the death and resurrection of Jesus and providing all the, the evidences. Um, I think, uh, so I haven't talked to him lately, but like the last I heard is that he's going to have a separate book that's just to, you know, he's famous for his massive bibliography of scholars. Uh, he catalogs where they are on these various positions and he has, um, you know, a number of debates about, okay, the, where are the scholars on the empty tomb? These scholars agree with it. These ones don't. Mm -hmm. um, and a whole bunch of other, you know, facts and stuff like that. So I think there's going to be some from revelations in terms of uh, some of the feedback he's gotten from scholars that aren't Christians. And we're going to be surprised about some of the things they admitted to him. Mm -hmm. believe. So, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cool. Well, yeah, with that said, I, I think we can end it um, for today. It was a great show. I, I love 
talking, obviously I talk to Teddy all the time, but Omar, I hope you'll become a, a regular and, and be on more shows and stuff like that as well. And let me know when you want me to come on. I, I, I you know, love to continue the conversation. It's great. Awesome. Awesome. All right, cool. So what I have for next week. Um, so, okay. So Friday of this week, I'm not going to be posting on real seekers, but I'm going to be a guest on the faith on altered podcast. And I'm going to be doing a, a skim down popular level version of my argument for God from beauty. I have a specific argument where I, uh, argue for the truth of, or that the theistic disposition, theistic dispositional realism hypothesis is the best explanation for the aesthetic facts and features that we find in our world. Um, so yeah. that'll, that'll be this Friday at 7 p.m. on the Faith Unaltered podcast. Otherwise, I'll post it on Real Seekers in a week or two or something. But the next show for Real Seekers is going to be Shroud-related. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, on November 30th, I'm having, um, I'm hopefully Bob Rucker. I haven't confirmed with him, but Joe Marino, Hugh Ferry, uh, and myself, and somebody brand new, Mark Guskin, will be on um, discussing the evidence from the Ethereum of Oviedo and the art history and numismatic coins argument, uh, mm -hmm. and then the 1389 Darcy Memorandum. So uh, look out for that. Cool. Uh, That'll be good. Awesome. All right. Well, have a great week and take care. Thank you, Dale. Hey, guys. Nice talking to you. And great. And just keep me up to date. But that's cool. Thank you.